Welcome to episode 13 of Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn and with me is Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. <laughs> so who have we got uh, tonight? Tonight we have Matt Hopper. Um, this came about, um, I've been on a shoot all day with Matt Hopper and mm. I've um, used used him I don't know that sounds Ooh, really bad yeah. who do we have who will be used tonight yeah, yeah that uh, good. I've, I've um, shot with Matt a lot so he's a director uh, yes. with what let me just rephrase that so <laughs> Matt Hopper is a director um, he's also a producer editor um, he's he's really well known in Melbourne um, but really all over Australia um, and so yeah I've, I've had the pleasure to work with Matt uh, a few times and he's just such a, a pro so but he has all these other interests and he's he's quite obsessive, um, which is quite funny because his company is called Compulsive. Uh-huh. But he's quite obsessive about this sort of um, what fires people and what the creative process behind what people do. And so, you know, to that end, he's even started up his own kind of, I think you called it a really ambitious side project. Which yeah, InFrame. InFrame mm. TV, which is just... Um, where he actually goes out and just almost picks these kind of, you know, superstars of particular areas and just kind of quizzes them on video about why or how they actually work through a creative process. Yeah. Um, which I've always found really fascinating. So, um, and that's how I first came to know Matt. And we, we spoke a bit about um, his process on commercial shoots. Yep. As well, and kind of the difference between that and kind of a smaller, smaller side project. Yeah, everything from the kind of little small sort of content yeah. jobs right up to, you know, the big sort of car jobs. We obviously spoke quite a bit about... Traction. Uh, traction, <laughs> which, was, which was pretty interesting, and just the legalities about what you can and can't show. Yeah, yeah. And earthquakes and... Um Japanese spirits. Yeah, well, yeah, when, and we'll get more into, into it when in, towards the end of the the, the show. But <laughs> that'll make a lot of sense later. <laughs> yeah, that that'll make lots of sense. But he's definitely angered the Japanese spirits of vengeance. Right. So, so we're going to jump straight into um, talking about Inframe TV and about his process about how he deals with sometimes difficult people, I guess, yeah. difficult interviewees, and and how he begins an mm. interview. Cool. Enjoy. I always look for something unusual for a first question to because a lot of the people that I've interviewed have been in, interviewed so many times and unless you get something that kind of hooks them in straight off the bat. And that's why I wanted to ask you about the purple people eater. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so well, give, give me an example of what a question like that might be. Uh, well, we were talking actually earlier today about interviewing Steve Kilby, who's the yeah. lead singer of the church, and was actually, you know, in many ways one of my idols growing up. And mine too. So I was, um, through different kind of people that I was involved with, um, he was working with Martin Kennedy, who I who I knew. And um, anyway, I was on a plane flying up here to Sydney and, and ready to interview him. And I was trying to think about that first question, and it just happened to be December 8th, which I knew was um, the anniversary of John Lennon's death. So I knew that Steve would probably have something to say on that. So we sat down and I said, well, actually, it's you know, the anniversary of John Lennon's death, and you know, where were you when John Lennon died? Like that kind of iconic question people get asked about, where were you when JFK died? And everyone remembers where they were. I remember I was in a tyre place uh, with my dad getting new tyres and he went back and went on this sort of great memory of where he was at that point when John Lennon died. So 
from that I always kind of and the interview just got momentum and speed and the way yep. you go so that was a nice kind of point to start it's a really interesting thing it's, I mean I, I'm I'm too young to remember John Lennon but I remember my mum calling and saying oh Chris Cocaine has died and it was only later I worked out that she meant Kurt Cobain and it was that kind of, <laughs> did, did you ever know no. No one has died since you've been alive. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so if I can keep kicking, then everyone's going to keep going. You're, you're in control. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually learned that. I mean, as a, as a funny thing, the person who taught me that actually years ago, I did a, a, a directed a film on the AFL with Bruce McAvaney. And, um, you know, not really a huge AFL fan, but he always had a very interesting question at the start and it was always a question that involved a lot of research and probably something that not many other people knew and I used to watch it again and again engage people immediately and get them connected so it was kind of something that I always look to do when I'm doing an interview myself just try and find something that kind of has that angle what do you do when someone doesn't come out of their shell you must get that a lot yeah I mean look there's it's when you're a documentary filmmaker and sometimes you know you haven't had the opportunity to really have a good chat to someone and you walk into a room and you try and engage them, I mean it can be can be difficult. You know, probably an example we were talking about the Inframe TV website, which is a website I do on creative process. Yep. Um, very early on, I did a film with Peter Greenaway, a very famous English film director. He was out for the Melbourne International Arts Festival. And as soon as he walked in the door, he started telling me that my lights were in the wrong spot. (laughs) And I went to pin a microphone on him and he said, so you want to pretend that the the camera's here then, do you? So it was, you know, immediately it was, um, I knew it was just going to be difficult. And it was, actually. But, you know, look, you win some, you lose some. In the end, I think the film kind of finished up okay. He, I mean, when you do a film on a filmmaker and a very particular filmmaker, well, you know, you're biting off, you know, a big chunk to chew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, in, sure. in Frame is basically, I mean, you've talked about it, is, is trying to document the creative process. Mm. And I know a lot of the questions you're actually asking are trying to get into what process they go through mm. in order to come up with whatever they're doing. Mm. What's wh- how how did that come about? Like, what what I, interests you about that question? Um, I, I guess you know, really, from a young age, I've always kind of felt like I like doing things creatively. I went and I did a BA, so a Bachelor of Arts and a major in Visual Arts. So I've kind of always been interested in that, and, and probably for my own personal reasons, I think because. You know, when I was younger, I never really knew how to begin or, you know, tips on songwriting and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I I think it purely just started out of a very personal interest. I mean, I obviously I was more I've come to filmmaking a little later in my life. So, you know, it was one of those things that I've kind of always felt like I've been playing catch up myself. And so I've been lucky enough to meet some of these people. And it, it just seemed the obvious kind of question to ask. The backstory behind InFrame TV really for me was I actually had a music background so I left uni and I actually toured around in some bands and then I worked in EMI and Sony and then I became a partner in a production company doing a lot of sound design and so forth so we're doing TV shows and and so forth and I was stuck in a dark little room while everyone was out having lots of fun (laughs) on the film set and I thought well this really isn't right and I wasn't going to get that opportunity so I actually kind of went back and did night school in my 30s and 
you know, started a little production company and I was kind of eking out doing small jobs. And really, I started it because I wanted to be doing the work that wasn't being offered to me. So mm. that was really it. I thought, well, I'm not being offered it, so I better go and make it. And I knew from, from my music background that to get good at something, you actually need to go through the process of making something to start to finish. I know there's a million unfinished songs, but when you actually finish a song from start to finish with the lyrics, there's actually a huge process in that. When you go through that, you learn a lot. So really at the start in frame was my film school. You know, I did a night school to get the basics, but really it was about me very regularly making something from start to finish and learning when I made those mistakes and went, and one of the first ones I did, I did a film on an architect and actually it was the film was about the sequential process of this this project coming together and I shot the interview in front of the finished product mm. and then realised that actually every time I went to show the interview, I was giving the ending of the film away <laughs> right. at the start. So I thought, okay, mental note to self, never do that on those films. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that I was learning along the way. And when you make something from start to finish and you learn those finishing skills, you learn an incredible amount. So I think in the first two years, I made about 24 short films, which are kind of on there. And, wow. you know, I kind of learned a lot. And I was lucky enough to meet some very kind of interesting and, and you know, incredible people. Who's, who's been a, a, someone who really, you went, wow, that was... There, there's really, there's been a few. I mean, the first one that probably gave the whole thing momentum was Sean Tan, mm. the, um, cool. the children's uh, author and a good friend of mine from university and him were making a short film based on his book, uh, The Lost Thing, and they had been sitting up in on top of a little laundrette in Carlton for three years, toiling away on that. And she said, you know, you should come and meet Sean. And I was blown away by him and his work. We made the little film and kind of posted it online and Sean kind of put it on his website and it, it had 800,000 views in wow. a week and a half. And I just wow. went, gee, this guy, okay, he must... It's, it's fairly similar to ADR, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I was completely blown away by this. And, and um, later on, they went and won an Academy Award for that film, The Lost Thing. I think it was um, four or five years ago it won the Academy Award for Best um, Short Animated Film. So he's an extraordinary talent, and I think... I was so lucky to meet someone like that so early in the journey. And he also opened a lot of doors and stuff too because yeah. of them. But, you know, what I kind of found with him is he is such a brilliant man. He's so uh, down to earth, but just so incredibly talented. So it really is when you start to meet people like that, you just kind of want more and more and more. Yeah. He's, he's a, and that's actually how I found about um, In Frame, <clears throat> just simply because... I think I'd seen him speak at the Opera House with um, Neil Gaiman. Yep. And um, it was just one of the most amazing kind of experiences to see those two. I was really pissed I missed that. Yeah, Yeah, it was really amazing. And I literally came home and I wanted to hear more about Sean. And that's how Mm -hmm. I found In Frame. Yeah. um, Yeah, it's funny. Actually, that film, because I know Steven Spielberg has been trying to buy the rights to his books, which he wants to him. And so forth. And that little film was making its way around all the Hollywood film execs after his Academy Award and stuff. I know that. Which is wow. funny when you make, you know, such a little homemade thing and yeah. you kind of hear that they live this this life. And a few of them have had that. I was lucky enough again to meet Chris Bangle, who was he's probably the most well known car 
designer of our generation. So he was the uh, chief of design at BMW for about 20 years. He And we got a kind of a coup on, he'd just actually resigned from BMW and, and he was out talking in Victoria and we shot a road movie with him actually. He had to, the government, uh, Victorian government brought him out and he had to go out and give a talk in Ballarat. So I talked him into putting me in the back of my car with two cameramen <laughs> and drive, which he kind of, in, you know, and I find that actually with a lot of the really top people, mm. you know, they kind of think it's a cool idea and he was happy to kind of go with it. And um, he gave the scoop on why he'd left BMW to us and he'd never mentioned yeah, right. it. And um, it hit the kind of front page of every car design um, website around the world. And I think that one had like four or five million views in a week or something, I think. Wow. I think it actually crashed the server of our, our internet <laughs> provider overnight when it made autoblog or something. So, yeah, it's funny how these little things, I mean, we've, we see it now so much, you know, these things, how they have that incredible ability to go viral and it's the right combination of the right thing at the right time. So when you started getting those numbers, did mm. that make you rethink the sort of people you would interview and the way that you would shoot? Yeah, it did, I guess. I mean, all of a sudden, I guess we started thinking about the monetization of the project and stuff. And, and look, there probably was potential for that. I think in many respects, what's nice about it is kind of the purity of it. I, I kind of found through that middle of the, that project and a few different business partners and stuff came on and stuff. And I think it probably for me lost a little bit of its its spark it's kind of was something that was quite personal for me but yeah it's i don't know if i've really answered your question well but yeah it's it, it certainly makes you kind of change things i mean all of a sudden you start thinking oh maybe we should be doing more car videos or maybe we should be doing and i think what is actually the nice part of it is it's actually a pretty you know eclectic journey through mm. creativity with you know and there are a couple of other car designers on there but there's cartoonists and there's painters and there's musicians and designers and so you know it's a it's a little uh labyrinth of uh you know, sometimes dead ends and sometimes really little nuggets of gold, I think. I think I think you sort of mentioned it yourself, the, the intimacy. Um, I think it was Marty Wilson Piper, you were interviewing him in the mm. record store. Yeah. And just that kind of, and then he was looking through records and he was showing records that he really loved. And it was just mm. that I felt like I was there kind of with with you yeah i think i always try and you know make people feel comfortable i always try and put them in an environment that that kind of says something to them so you know that's that kind of documentary you know a style thing i guess you know also you know smaller crews sometimes and just kind of keeping things flowing not getting it to you know slating everything and so you to try and keep things kind of fresh and conversational like we are now. Mm. <laughs> the other side of the coin, how do you make money? Because mm. you've got to pay for bills, mm. right? Yeah, so, yeah. So the commercial side of your business, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, well, I have um, a, a company called Compulsive, which is a Melbourne-based video production company, film production company. So, yeah, we it's it's actually me now. I mean, I've had all sorts of incarnations of this company in the last 12 years. I've had six staff, I've had editors, I've had designers, I've had producers. And, you know, the way the kind of industry is moving and changing at the moment, it kind of feels good to be lying low a little bit. What I have 
luckily have is a, a really nice warehouse space, which I kind of bought a few years ago and renovated. And uh, I've sort of put around me handpicked some people that I like collaborating with. So I've got a you know fantastic editor and colour grader. Um, who's in there, also a fantastic sound designer, a digital strategist. And we just uh, basically collaborate on projects when they come in, but we tend to lie low and do our own thing when, when we don't. And I think that works, you know, pretty pretty nicely. So they have they have their own kind of organisations, but you're all working in the same physical space? Yeah. Collaborate on projects? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what it is. So I kind of approached a few people um, when I was renovating this warehouse space. It's about 240 square metres and it's in Cremorne in, in Victoria. So it's very central and what has actually become a kind of creative hub, I guess, of... Uh, especially an advertising hub and design hub. It wasn't when I moved in there, luckily. That's why I could afford yeah, to buy yeah. it. Yeah, it sounds like you got an error just before everyone else figured it out. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky like that, but it's so close to the centre uh, center of the city. But, yeah, I kind of approached some people that I was working with and said, look, I've got this space and I want to renovate it. You know, would you like to, you know, sign a lease and come in and I'll build you a space? And we, you know... So it's kind of part of, I guess, my my business model in some ways is being a landlord too. You know? yeah. <laughs> cool. So, um, but compulsive, yeah. I work with uh, advertising agencies, also direct with a lot of clients and so forth. And it's very varied the kind of stuff that that I've done over the last few years. And uh, everything from doing car ads to Honda to you know smaller shoots. And it's a, a sign of the times. I think probably these days we do a lot of content. You know, it's it's a lot of that just kind of making things for internet and, and different things. And, you know, so there's bigger things where I can kind of scale up and there's smaller things that I can kind of go out and shoot myself, which I quite like doing. I mean, I like kind of getting down and dirty with a camera and flicking open your case and grabbing your camera and just making something. There's kind of mm. something nice about that. Yeah. There's also something nice about kind of shooting a car ad and having 10 police cars and closing down a freeway. Yeah, I'll bet. Stuff as well. <laughs> and sitting there, you know, with, with, you know, being God and calling all the shots on that is fun too. Being God. I think I found a title for the show. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at some of your clients and websites, obviously a lot there, but from Victoria Health to Honda to Department of Justice and yeah. then What's agencies so- like DT Digital and yeah. things yeah, like yeah, that yeah. as well. What did you do for Department of Justice? I did something, um, a, a film on knife violence for them, actually, and that was a couple of years ago. And we had um, Sullivan Stapleton, who was in Animal Kingdom, and a few things kind of came on board as an ambassador. And my production company facilitated the job. So as I think, you know, around Australia, youth knife violence is a problem. And they wanted to do something to kind of bring awareness and stuff to it. So we did a two-day workshop with some children, or teenagers, I guess, from various different places, and that we got them to write two film scripts, and then we um, we shot them. So I think oh, wow. officially that is Sullivan Stapleton's directorial debut. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so on one of the films anyway. So, yeah, it was good fun, actually, and there was all sorts of kind of really interesting st- statistics that I didn't know kind of came out of that that most um teenagers that are you know have unfortunately have uh knife attacks on them have had their own blade turned back on them which is a good reason not to be carrying a knife kids wow Mm. psa Mm. um and so is is there a varied there must be a couple of differences but what's what's the difference between working with someone like like Honda, like maybe mm. in, in terms of your process, mm. um, as opposed to working for an agency on a, let's say, one-week branded mm. content project that has to be pushed out the door yesterday. Yeah. 
Well, there's a lot of stuff that happens with car ads. So there's a lot of things that you kind of go and look at. The first thing, you go and have a look at the car. Right. And so it's all about the car. Okay. So we kind of head out there and have a look at the car, photograph it on all sorts of angles and kind of see where it looks good. Obviously, there'll be certain features that they're wanting to target, so those things need to be looked at. Then the agency kind of gets on board and says, okay, you know, we want this and that. No, we want a little pony in the back of the car. And you go, well, you can't have a little pony in the back of the car. <laughs> that's going to cost too much money. Or that's, you know, they actually on one one thing, there was <laughs> they wanted to put a little Shetland pony in the back and a child in the back seat. And it's like, wow. I don't think we're going to get that through occupational health and safety. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of, you know, I mean, you're working with limitations all the time it's very expensive to go out and shoot cars on the road i mean you literally you know i'm not going to go into figures but it's it is expensive to do what sort of stuff do you have to do like for to go to do it huge occupational health and safety stuff so i mean if you're doing tracking say on a freeway I don't know if anyone's seen it you, sometimes, but the, you get uh, all the special operations police, all the road traffic guys, and they're hotted up uh, SS Holdens. They come out right. and they look through all your occupational health and safety stuff, and, and you know, because people are harnessed on the back of trucks and hanging over roads with mm. cranes and all sorts of crazy stuff. I've seen the Van Dam truck videos. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a lot like yeah. that. Um, <laughs> So, and then basically they come out onto a road and they fan over and it's a completely, you know, moving four or five lane highway and they push it back to 40 Ks and the car and the tracking vehicle come out and you kind of do your runs on it and then you kind of fan off Mm. and, um, you know, you're only allowed to do it at certain times and this and that, but it is, you know, it really is quite dangerous. I mean, you're getting sometimes on the... The Eastern Freeway in Melbourne, where I've shot a lot of stuff, is you know there's big trucks, there's five lanes of vehicles, and so there's reasons why there is those occupational yeah. <laughs> health and safety yeah. things. So not the same limitations when you're doing an Easter special for yeah. a company, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's that can be you know very quick, and sometimes on those things, people would just go completely off your reel and kind of give you a lot of room to kind of go well look can you just kind of make something for us it needs right. to needs to kind of fill this brief and and that's kind of what you get you know hired for really you're kind of a gun for hire and you know most people have a look and see if you've done something similar and you know mm. so forth so very very different beasts but you know the end result is kind of you you know you're working within constraints and you you also need to kind of be mindful of people's brands and so forth so i think even as a filmmaker and especially a commercial filmmaker you need to be very mindful of of brands you know and working with advertising agencies and creatives and that kind of stuff so you know you need to kind of work within that machine and understand it and if you don't understand then you just create a lot more work for yourself Mm. yeah because you'll need to make it so that it works within those those things but Mm. it's you know within that there's always a lot of scope to kind of be creative generally with what you do the other part with the car stuff of course is there's enormous kind of legals that you go through Mm. with with big kind of car brands everything kind of gets sent off to their legals and you know, for does it look like it's breaking unsafely, and is it this, and wow, is it that, right. and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Because I remember someone in advertising told me the hardest thing about doing a car is you've got to appeal to the hoon, but look like you're not appealing to the hoon. Mm, so totally. Yeah, we're, we did some stuff actually with an off-road thing where the tyre actually left the ground and it went to legal and it was like, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, really? No, tyres well, don't leave the tires, ground. Tyres stay not, on the Not ground, with this yeah. brand of car, they don't. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> 
and it looked really cool but unfortunately the, the shot got got hit the uh the trash bin at the yeah. edit suite so. and so what happens to that video content is that is that an in, does that make it to the show reel do you show it to uh, special yeah th- those those kind of car things or yeah, like something that can't be legally shown for the for oh do i show no i wouldn't do that to because again you know my website well it wouldn't appear on my website anyway yeah. i mean i'm kind of really aware of you know, when you work with, with people about keeping certain things, you know, confidential within sure. what they do. And I think you, if you do that and you kind of respect the people that you're working with, you work with them again and again. Mm-hmm. I have had one example, and I won't mention it, but I did a fashion video for someone and I didn't know that they weren't supposed to kind of, nothing was allowed to appear on there and they do a daily social media search and it came up and the advertising agency rang up and, then, you know, you've got their video on your website nothing else can appear anyway some people are you know very uh tough custodians of their own brands what about the other side we Mm. had a bit of a conversation earlier and you were talking about in the past people have just used your your work Mm. without actually paying you Mm. lots of times lots of times um not so much the kind of commercial work that i do for brands because really at the end of the day i get paid and it it leaves my place and it's it's really owned by someone else but a lot of the in-frame stuff has um been kind of used i i allow people to kind of um put things on on websites uh if they if they link it from my so you can there's a link to be able to kind of put the code on your site and stuff but a lot of people have kind of ripped things and put them on their own websites and, you know, started their own channels on YouTube and my films appear on... Really? Yeah, wow. it's, it's annoying. It really is annoying. I mean, it's kind of, if they were nice enough to probably ask me, I'd probably give them permission or right. just say, you know, use the link and you can kind of have it. I, it's one of those things. InFrame is really just something I kind of like putting out there and I think I've always kind of had this... this at each in my mind with the work that I do that you're either part of the problem or part of the solution and I think sometimes for me being in advertising I feel well you know I'm not really doing anything I'm just actually making someone buy another toothbrush or buy a you know it's it's so in your more in your more pessimistic (laughs) mornings surely not all the time before I've had a coffee yeah (laughs) so you know I mean InFrame is actually really there for whoever wants to go and have a look and I think there are some really nice kind of pieces if anyone's kind of creatively minded to go and have a a peruse through there and find some things so it's part of being part of being the solution right right? Mm -hmm. just producing kind of good things that people may like now obviously the job as well also i know you just got back from japan Mm. and we're obviously talking in sydney and Mm. you're about to and you said earlier that you're finally going to get to sleep in your bed yes which yeah, first for a long time. Yeah, yeah, it's been a couple of weeks actually. So, unfortunately, I missed my flight back from Tokyo and finished up at a thirty-hour transit via the Gold Coast, and <sighs> then got back to Melbourne. Literally hopped on a plane and came up here to Sydney to shoot for a couple of days. And he's he's not telling everything because I know he nearly got killed this morning. I did. Yeah. So I almost got hit by a car. By, by a client? Or? <laughs> no, no. Well, I was kindly put up in a very nice, nice place, and uh, in Bondi, and I was walking down to Bill's for breakfast prior to shooting today, and a car <laughs> launched the, the um, lady, basically hit the throttle instead of the the brake, and oh, yeah. launched up, and I got clipped at the back of my legs and it went up and through a window. So. I've heard that if the wheels go off the ground, it's really dangerous. <laughs> it is dangerous. Yeah. It won't get through legal, so I can assure you what happened this morning. Oh, <laughs> and then wow. the reason he 
was late for the plane was because there was an earthquake. That's exactly right. So yeah. I've got a theory. Uh-oh, these things happen in trees. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that. But also, I've got a theory when he was in Japan, he's upset a Japanese, mm. like, god or spirit or something. Wow, that's a po- huge leap. Possibly, yeah. a, cu- possibly a couple. <laughs> I don't know how we got there so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was. There was a 7.8 uh, earthquake in Tokyo. And actually, there was a small one during the day, and that's why my I, train was delayed to the airport. And then the later one happened. And as we were about to take off, the plane just started shaking violently and all these kind of earthquake alarms were going off and people looking really nervous and scared and it was actually it shook the plane a lot it was actually Mm. quite a quite a reasonable size earthquake and they had to go and examine the runway and make sure there weren't cracks and stuff and then we finally took off would have felt good when you finally took off it was like yay a victory (laughs) of sorts even after i'd missed my flight (laughs) what was it like on the plane while while it was happening was what was the general mood apart from scared? Uh, there's a lot of kind of looking around with kind of fish faces with, with mouths open and eyes really wide. <laughs> um, one of the, actually, the one of the um, flight attendants kind of came through and said, there's an earthquake, just relax, it's going to be okay, and rah, rah. So it was, it was okay. I mean, it was kind of a little unnerving, but it was over in a minute. Mm. I heard without kind of getting we're getting a little sidetracked here but the that's, Tokyo that's what, yeah, that's what we do that's, what we do. <laughs> that's the brand yeah. um, the Park Hyatt in Tokyo apparently the Lost in Translation Hotel the people were up there the wall started cracking oh, while they were up wow. there and it's up high it's like 60th floor or something that bar so I would imagine that would be a little unnerving that would be very yeah. unnerving it's, that'll wake you up I think the reason I asked I, I flew through a typhoon right. coming out of Hong Kong mm. and um and it was so bad that no one was screaming, no one was, you know, crying or anything. Mm. Everyone had just gone quiet and fish faces. Like mm. Everyone was just like, oh, like just really quiet. And, and I think that freaked me out more than anything yeah. because suddenly, what, what you see on the movies where everyone's like, ah, mm. it was it was not that. It was just everyone was kind of coming to terms with their death. Mm. Wow, <laughs> it was pretty hard. It was like that Toy Story three. <laughs> so, oh yeah <laughs> I, I've actually had a similar thing I had it we um, coming back from New York to LA over Tornado Alley we hit a huge big storm and had one of those sudden loss of altitudes and the plane fell for about 15 seconds ah. and that was that was very unnerving actually that and I was coming back actually and doing that AFL project after that. So I was on about 30 planes in a month, but it really mm. I had to go to the doctor and get some Valium and kind of, it took me a while to kind of denerve myself after that. I it, was like- It did with me. White so. knuckles on yeah, any wow. turbulence and, and so forth. But it's a, uh, it's a hazard of the job, I guess. So how, how often are you traveling? Like literally every week? I do. It, it really depends, actually. I mean, sometimes I travel a lot, sometimes not so much. Japan was a holiday, um, and I really wanted that break. I did some work for ASOP, and they were going to get me to shoot some stores over there because they've just opened some stores. But in the end, I wanted to go down to uh, Niashima Island, which is a beautiful um, art gallery or art island down in the south there. And so I really didn't kind of have time. So, but it was, I'm so glad I went down there actually. It's a absolutely stunning place. If anyone ever gets the opportunity, the Japanese architect Ando has done all these beautiful galleries down there. And they've got an incredible collection in, including a fantastic um, James Turrell kind of piece, one of those infinity kind of pieces that you, mm. you walk into and stuff. So it's a beautiful, 
uh, place and the weather was great and you ride a bike around the island and stop at all these different galleries and stuff and it's oh, really sounds lovely yeah it's yeah. extraordinary actually if anyone was that your first time in japan yeah it was it was and it really actually you know from a point of view of advertising and design and that kind of stuff just really um taking in you know their their kind of um take on it i guess is you know incredibly interesting actually just from you know walking around their metro and looking at advertising and different things and i mean as as well as so much so much more but um it really is it's a it's a fabulous culture and, and you know tokyo is a fabulous city and i just kind of felt like i scratched the surface yeah i'd like to, I'd like to go back again i can go back mm. yeah. yeah i just you just need to find some more japanese clients <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly exactly yeah. well funnily enough actually i was supposed to go over and it was a project with John Warwicker, the kind of iconic designer. And um, John's on In Frame TV. John was one of the first ones I interviewed, or probably the first six. And he, he's a delightful man. We've become friends. And we, he's um, a member, or the only Western member, of the Tokyo Typography Directors Club. So John's over there a lot. And we started documenting some of these older Japanese designers and typographers, actually. And that was done on a previous visit with a, a business partner of mine at InFrame, Lou Weiss. Um, so we, one of those things we've been planning on doing more, but we just haven't kind of got round to it. But John spends a lot of time over there and um, is very influenced by the kind of work of all those um, Japanese typographers and stuff. So, so how, how did you come about to interview him in the... <clears throat> um, I met John, he was out working, doing the signage on Federation Square many years ago right. in Melbourne. Yeah, so yeah. Um, a good friend of mine was working in there. And, you know, that was, you know, Tomato were, you know, that iconic design company. Still are. And think, still anyways, are, yes. Yeah. And I met John and, I mean, he's a uh, fantastic guy to sort of sit down and have a chat to. So incredibly interesting. And uh, just a wealth of knowledge on everything. <laughs> <laughs> But just a delightful man. So when I started this, it was kind of he was on my wish list and I, I lost contact with a friend who kind of knew him. So I hit him up on Facebook like you, like you do. <laughs> do you? And, about, and um, about a month later, John wrote two lines back going, yeah, that sounds like it could be OK. So we just got it. Uh, got chatting and then we went out he wanted to go to uh, the McClellan Sculpture Park outside of Frankston and John doesn't drive so I said look if you drive me down there <laughs> I'll do an interview and stuff for you while you're walking around and and we did that and that that kind of film was again really widely received and Carl Hyde from Underworld generously gave us Born Slippy and all these sort of fabulous wow. underworld tracks to use for the film for nothing, cool. much to his uh, publisher's dismay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's been a lovely little kind of snakes and ladder board, the in-frame stuff. I've met some wonderful people. And, and after last year, actually did a, a film on Carl Hyde, one of the other members of um, Tomato, when he was out doing his solo project, which John organised for me. And he's, again... We were kind of talking about some of the really fantastic people I've met, and he's really right up there, Carl mm. Hyde. He's just an extraordinary um, individual, incredibly talented, absolutely delightful man. And, um, yeah, I've been very lucky to spend some time with people like that. That's great. We're, just to take us out, we're starting to get a little bit close to the end, but I um, just want to hear a little bit about Young Guns Ah, well, well. Yeah, okay, that's, that's part of Compulsive, so that's my kind of... Um, 
more commercial angle of the production company. So I guess these days, and we touched on this prior to kind of going to air, that there's a lot of these days, you know, smaller things, content things that need to be made. And I guess, you know, also we're talking about personal brand and different things these days. And, you know, when you've been around for a while, some of those things you kind of don't want to work on, but it's still, you know, good things. And I work with some good younger kind of shooters and stuff. So I have a kind of basically about six people who are young shooters and editors that I work with. And when there's kind of smaller jobs and different things, then they come through and work on those. And it's just a way of being able to offer clients, you know, sort of more budget conscious work that I can, that with people that I trust, that I know are good young people who have got great skills and good sensibilities and that kind of stuff. And I can also kind of give it, you know, my eye over it and kind of, you know, a bit of creative direction over it. So that's really kind of all that's, that's about. It's always nice working with young talents and, and, you know, people that are coming through the ranks. And, you know, again, like we're saying, you, a lot of them you kind of learn things from too because I love mm. to edit too. So a lot of these guys or girls come in and they kind of got all their tricks and their shortcuts and stuff. So it's always good to kind of see what they're doing. Be great. Yeah, so that, that's kind of what that's about. And it's nice to kind of get um, new people kind of coming through the studio and different freelancers in and out and... The whole idea in there is to try, try and get a nice, in, in the studio, is to get a nice kind of um, atmosphere where everyone can kind of cross-pollinate and different things. And we're just starting to work on our first project together, actually, a lot of the people in there, where we're actually, I'm building a, a little TV studio downstairs and we're going to have a look at kind of creating a music show in the next uh, next little while, which I've been wanting to do for a while. Now, um, your space I've been lucky enough to go to, and it is a, a wonderful space. You've won awards for it, haven't you? Yeah, we have won a, yeah. a, a few actually last year. We, um, a Melbourne Design Award, we've been highly commended in the Australian Institute of Architects for Best Workplace. I think that's kind of coming second or third. Or right. I'm not quite sure. But it was nominated for lots of things, Australian Interior Design Awards and, and so forth. And that's been a really great project in actual fact. You know, I've become more and more and more interested in architecture through that through that process. And I, you know, I wanted to renovate this space that I had that was very kind of bare and, and boxy kind of warehouse. And a good friend of mine is a very talented architect, um, Matt Gibson, who's just actually been named uh, Architect of the Year for Bell Magazine, actually. So wow. I got him while he was cheap. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a bit of a habit of that. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> like to spot a bargain when I can. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Matt came on board and did a fabulous design. And um, it was one of those things I really kind of had to, you know, making a very high bespoke kind of finish. It's hard to describe. It's all plywood and glass and and kind of fractal yeah yeah i mean if anyone wants to have a look at it it's on compulsive.com.au and there's a few photos on there but um yeah it's been a great great process and actually that's what's got me kind of doing downstairs but yeah i mean i think these days too you, you know like the different things architecture design you know it's everything's merging these days so i think you know, I don't know how, but I kind of feel like more in my filmmaking thing, I'd like to get more involved in architecture and maybe it's making architecture kind of films or something, mm. but it's certainly um, a great area of interest now. Great. All right. Well, I think that's going to it's gonna wrap us up. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for your time. And so if people want to track you down after this, 
um, stalk you? And where can they yeah. find you? Where can they find you online? Yeah, well, it's um, well, my website is compulsive.com.au, and if they wanted to email me directly, it would be Matt M A T T at compulsive.com.au. Very good. All right. Well, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Australian Design Radio. So, Matt, where can people find you? Um, on Twitter, uh, at, it's at Leechworth, L-E-A-C-H-W-O-R-T-H, or Matt underscore Leech on Instagram. Cool. Yep. Actually, and yeah, on Instagram, it's Compulsive Matt. Compulsive Matt. Is, <laughs> it's probably a background story that we can talk about. Without the obsessive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm Flynn Tracy and you can find me at flynntracy.com or on Twitter at F-O-I-N-T-R-A-C-Y. You can find this episode of more at australiandesignradio.simplecast.fm and you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at AUS Design Radio. Until then, see you next time. See you Thank guys. you. Bye.